Hello and welcome to The Fandamentalist, the fandom podcast investigating all aspects of geeky media. Welcome to the I Disappoint Dad Club. I've spent my life trying to build something here. Growing up, a non-white, non-straight girl in Blue Springs, Nebraska. I wouldn't wish to excite your anticipation. I never asked to be made! You're exactly the hero I wanted you to be. The theme song you just heard is Good Riddance by R. Soner, available on the Free Music Archive. My name is Kylie, and here with me we have Gretchen. Hello. Julia. Hi, everyone. And joining us from Germany, our contributor, Jana. Hi. You might know her from Gilmore Girls and everything she's written about it in neurotic detail. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> we greatly appreciate and like all of our mothers have read it (laughs) yes yeah it's actually true julia and i specifically our mothers have read her pieces and commented on it yeah so this is this is important knowledge to know if you haven't read that check it out for today we will not be talking about gilmore girls we have a very lovely proper podcast planned for you very kindish Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, I should point out where you could read her stuff, in case you don't know. We all write for thefandamentals.com, the geeky media website that explores the fundamentals of fandom. Uh, so news, reviews, deeper analysis kind of pieces, all that. We got it. Yep. Wasn't that oh, a good yes. pitch? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So to to bring you that that professionalysis, we're going to start off by talking about fandom news. Uh, what's been going on? Gretchen has a bit of an announcement, right? Yay! Well, I mean, if you've been around our website, then you will know that what will be this weekend by the time that you are listening to this, Elizabeth, um, who writes the Supergirl uh, reviews with me and also is currently doing a review watch of glee she and i are going to a convention called clexicon which is a convention about lgbt women in media and we're both going to be panelists she is going to be talking about queer women in video gaming i am going to be doing queer representation in steven universe writing with style and diversity and ethics and storytelling so it's gonna be awesome maybe next Maybe the next time I can give a recap, I will probably be writing something on the site. Same with Elizabeth. It's in Very Vegas, excited. right? Yes, Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah it sounds awesome. No, Gretchen is kind of a big deal in this whole thing. <laughs> Gretchen's a huge deal. Okay, yeah, she, she's giving panels, obviously. Yeah, just say We're intimidated by her. <laughs> Except I'm like the least intimidating person, I think. I don't know. <laughs> right now, everything is intimidating to me. <laughs> well, I did find out that I'm an inch taller than you, so that makes me feel a little bit better. Yana, how tall are you? Yeah. Uh, five feet six, I think, in your weird oh, numbers. I'm taller than you, too. Oh, uh, like, Julia's the tallest. Like 164? Uh, 68, more like. Yeah, I'm like 167, so. Yeah, oh, kind of about the I same might height. be taller. I might be Yana's taller. a little bit taller. <laughs> yeah, for All anyone right. who doesn't know this because apparently i give off the vibe of a taller person i'm five foot four what gretchen's an inch shorter what yeah yeah i'm five foot three i'm not a large person i know 
Is that so this is some quality fandom news, guys. Woo! Yeah, <laughs> everyone is tiny here. Woo! <laughs> it's, that's the secret of the fundamentals. We're all actually very small. <laughs> oh my god! Anyway, let's talk. Uh, um, let's talk more about Clixicon because it's going to be awesome. You should all go if you possibly can. I can't, so it is going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. I can't, but I'm going to stalk it on social mm-hmm. media as it's happening. Yeah, yeah. I kind of can't either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what else do you want me to say about it? I think that I think that's it. Uh, yep. I was I was gonna say in other news, Mystery Science Theater three thousand release date was announced. It's oh, gonna be on Netflix, fourteen episodes airing April fourteenth. We that's, yeah, that should be enjoyable. I, I yeah. didn't ever watch it, so I don't yeah. know. Oh, some of them never, are. Hilarious. You never even watched the uh, the Catalina Caper. <laughs> No, like, I actually have no idea what anyone's talking about when they talk about it. I just know that this is a thing that everyone talks about. I've never seen any of it, but it kind of spawned a weird fanfiction genre in German fandom, at least, where we uh, apparently wrote stuff in the style and tore apart other people's fanfiction, which I was very good at when I was 14 and I'm kind of appalled by right now. Yeah, like, what you like... Hilarious. Like, intercut your own, like, salty commentary in between, yeah. like, the lines of the fanfic. Yeah. I was so good at that. And I would <laughs> oh never gosh, do that's it again. Amazing. Oh, I love it. Oh, I kind of want to do that. Right? <laughs> I know there was some fear that this would never, like, actually be released, so I'm really glad that they actually have a date now. Right. Yeah. Um, and didn't Bill Nye just get released? Mm-hmm. Am I making that up? Or did that get a trailer? It got a trailer. Yeah. It got a trailer that dropped, and that looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bill Nye saves saving the world. The world. If anyone can do it, he can. He's probably explaining climate change, would be my guess. (laughs) That's what I heard him talk about when I saw him in Washington, D.C. The next piece of news is actually just speculation. It's not 100% confirmed, but it's a a higher-up rumor that Mel Gibson is going to be directing the second Suicide Squad movie. No, Kylie, don't say fuckface Gibson. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's Everyone fitting. needs to know that that is what is written. <laughs> uh, has he ever directed anything ever? He has. And the thing is, anti-Semitism aside, and that shouldn't be an aside, and no. I, obviously I'm, I'm Jewish, that's never an aside for me. There's never anything this man has directed that wouldn't have been just as fine if anyone else had directed it. Like, what has he directed? Well, isn't he doing that movie with, um, that cop movie that looks terrible? About, like, the cops who are, um... Like, it's, like, about police brutality, and then they go to, like, the underground and, like, take their vengeance out or whatever. He directed Braveheart, and he directed Passion of the Christ. Oh, oh did he? Braveheart yeah. was pretty at times. Yeah. Julia, don't take his side. Like, Kylie's point still stands. Like, yeah. imagine, like, someone else doing Braveheart. Like, okay. Very imaginable. <laughs> like, yeah, someone else could have done it just as good, if not better. Passion of the Christ so. is just fucking... Sorry. Well, yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. I mean, on the other hand, it's not like he can harm the franchise any more than it already has been harmed. Oh, That's man. a good point. I mean, Jared Leto's <laughs> already in it, so. <laughs> Just run with it. But, like, we shouldn't have to, I'm sorry, it's 2017. We shouldn't have to be like, yeah, he said anti-Semitic shit. But, like, I'm sorry. We should I not have to. I'm so many Roman Polanski to parties, so. So don't give a Fine. Welcome to 2017. Uh, Ian Rian? Is that how it's pronounced? Rian? From... Oh, no idea. I don't know. You know him as Ramsey from Game of Thrones. He's also a Misfit star. He's going to yeah. be in a Marvel series, Inhumans, that's going to be airing ABC this fall. I'm actually excited for him to get 
away from Game of Thrones. He's yeah. also ambitious and he's really, really cute and adorable there. <laughs> Ooh, that's good he to know. He yeah. seems like a really sensitive guy. He had one douchey interview about the uh, rape controversy in Game of Thrones, where he's basically like, people who complain about it should instead go volunteer at women's shelters. And didn't he also yeah. say but... this thing about how Ramsay just had a very rough childhood and has daddy issues or something, as like an explanation for his fucked upness? Yeah, uh, he did. Right. My guess is he's a method actor, but sometimes just... I mean, he's a good enough. I mean, like, that role was kind of so over the top, it's a little like Glenn Close in, a, in uh, Andrew and Dalmatians kind of stuff, but... Yeah. <laughs> He that is like a wonderful a comparison. Yep. It's a nice segue, too, speaking of Disney movies. Oh, I didn't even plan that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, take it away, Gretchen. Um, they are going to be doing the live-action Lion King. Uh, I don't have any information about release date or anything, but they did tap Donald Glover, which most people know from Community, but he is also playing young Lando Calrissian in the new Han Solo movie. Mm-hmm. He is going to be the voice of Simba. And James Earl Jones will be reprising his role as Mufasa. So that's so pretty it's cool. going to be a live action like Lion King with voice actors, so it's gonna be CGI yeah. against like live action background. I've been wondering. Yeah, I think like, like uh, Jungle Book. Jungle Book, yeah. Oh, yeah. I hope they don't have a horrible child actor. Why do they call that live action then? It's just uh yeah. basically just CGI. It's just CGI lions. Right. Cause I mean with the Jungle Book it actually made sense because you had a human character. Yeah. yeah. But, ugh. That's and like, kid. and just like CGI animals. But... I mean, are we are we maybe misjudging this? Is it possible James Earl Jones is going to be like donning a lion suit? <laughs> I mean, have you seen the stage play, the like the musical? It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, they do like really interesting stuff with costumes. Yeah, they're and their, their puppet work is amazing. Yeah, but James Earl Jones kind of indicates that like this is not what like, they're going to be having him dub over something. Yeah, right. The man's like eighty something, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, he must be probably. I'm not sure how I feel about this live-action Disney trend. Well, Beauty and the Beast looks good so far. It's it coming out really soon. Good. I'm going to be honest. I'm, like, all about seeing it, but I know yeah. I shouldn't be because I know it's nothing new. It yeah. makes me angry how much I want to go see it. The Cinderella thing was harmless, ultimately. Kind of pretty to look at. <laughs> <laughs> if Disney can just keep with this harmless streak, I think yeah. we'll be in good shape. Yeah. Is Rock One harmless? Oh, hey, speaking of memorable voice actors and very recognizable voice actors, uh-huh. Dante Bosco <laughs> is going to be making a Ruffio sequel to Hook called Bangarang, and he's Bang got Bang a Kickstarter. Bang! Yep. Does that have a meaning for And it's going to be distributed through YouTube. Didn't Ruffio die? It's a prequel. prequel. <laughs> Sorry. So, yeah, a sequel was wrong. I mistyped that. It's God, Gretchen. I'm so bad at typing. Yeah, Dante Bosco the- does have the most ridiculously recognizable voice. He really does. Like yeah. I never recognize voice actors. I'm kind of pathetic when it comes to that. But I, I was just re- Bosco. I was actually like just before we started recording, I was just rewatching the Project Voice Band episode where they have Iroh, but they just dump- spliced in all these clips of Dante <laughs> Bosco saying stuff together, and it's like this hot mess, but it's wonderful. <laughs> like, hey, ladies. Oh, <laughs> it's so oh good. man. The thing is, you can never unhear him really. Yeah, you can't. And then you watch But I'm a Cheerleader yeah. and he's in it and you're like, oh my oh. god, it's just Prince Zuko. I'm sorry. <laughs> Poor gay Prince Zuko. Rainbow <laughs> suit, yes. Yay. Good for you. <laughs> what a classic. Yeah, that's an excellent. If you haven't seen But I'm a Cheerleader, like, pause this and go watch it. It's amazing. It's ridiculous yeah. and it's amazing. Alright, so to close out the Phantom News, the last piece is that the Oscars are this weekend, right? Yep. 
Well, they will be yesterday by the time people listen. Does anybody care about the Oscars anywhere? Nope. Uh, Everyone's yelling about La La Land. I don't uh, know what's happening. I don't. I don't like watch movies any. Like I saw Rogue One. It was like the last movie I saw. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, same actually. (laughs) Seth Meyers released this like sketch that was called Oscar Bait, and it was like a fake trailer for a movie, and it's like a man will cry in a car a lot, (laughs) and it like shows him like sobbing in a car, and it was just called like Oscar Bait coming soon, featuring racial tension. Lindsay Ellis did a really nice piece on Oscar Bait once. Like, yeah. the former nostalgia chick. Like, Oscar Bait, a history, how this works, what the usual <laughs> identifiers are. And it's really informative. Yeah. I should check that out, because, yeah, this time of year just always annoys me, because it's like, go watch these films that you have no desire to actually see. Right. Yeah. So. And, and everyone... I feel like everyone knows at this point that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like if the last couple of years have, to- have taught us anything, it's that the Oscars mean absolutely nothing. What one? <laughs> I don't remember. I like lost faith in the Oscars, like when Shakespeare in Love won. Oh god! I remember. Don't talk about Shakespeare in Love. Like time ago, and I was just like, I think this might be bullshit. <laughs> we had to watch this movie in what is basically honors English class over and over again in the sex scenes. Shakespeare in Love. Yes. We didn't even watch, Ugh. when we watched an ex- actual Shakespeare adaptation, we watched it in German and on tape. But we watched Shakespeare in Love in English on DVD several times, wrote, ex- wrote an exam on it, and we had to watch the set oh, over and over again because my teacher... How much is, th- how, how is that actually relevant? It isn't. <laughs> well, it's in English. It was an honors English class. I don't know. I mean, but 10 things I hate about you would have been more relevant. Yes. Like... Well, there are like Louis Williams <laughs> because sort of Romeo and Juliet, and big, why are all these chicks named the same or something? But it's just so ridiculous. <laughs> oh my I mean, God. women in England had like four names between them at that time. They're all called Elizabeth, Catherine, or Anne. It's like the like, Bible, everyone's Mary. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh. we don't give a shit about the Oscars. Okay, so in to summarize this fandom th- news segment, watch But I'm a Cheerleader and don't watch Shakespeare in Love. I don't need any calming tea! I need to capture the Avatar! Okay, so for our first segment today on The Fandamentalist, we are going to talk about Pride and Prejudice. And um, zombies? No. No! And zombies. No. Pride and Prejudice and Jar Jar Binks. Ugh, that's even, I don't even, I didn't think it could be worse than that, but like, no. Um, Kai, I don't know what Schmeninist means. So, for those of you who don't know, in our notes it says, we are Schmeninists and we like Pride and Prejudice, what is up with that? I don't know what Schmeninist means. I was just being weird, I was trying to say that we are feminists who happen to like this movie. So, so, or this, this book. Oh my gosh, Kylie, it's a book. (laughs) I know, I'm just... I know what it is. But my point is that, like, a lot of times when you talk about Pride and Prejudice, people kind of think, like, it evokes a a certain image of, like, maybe a middle-aged mom who likes swooning romances. So Uh, what is it about it that we, four feminists who are not super into swooning romances, love? Yes. Um, Well, I love the fact that it's not a swooning romance. It isn't. It really (laughs) isn't. Really, no. really isn't. That's just a common interpretation because of reasons. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, it's probably the most like a swooning romance of all her books. Maybe, like, if you count Emma, 
No, I think Northanger Abbey was definitely her most swooning romance. I mean, Northanger Abbey just has structural problems, but... <laughs> well, that's because Northanger Abbey is a parody of gothic romance. Like, yeah. so that's why it's like a yeah. romance. But even so, like, making fun of it. What justifies them getting married in the end? Absolutely nothing. So, yeah. Because it's a parody. Because she's making fun of... Anyway. But the other, the other weird interpretation I sometimes see of Pride and Prejudice is that, like, Lizzie is this, you know, bra-burning feminist. Yeah. Who, like, won't be pushed around. Think because we need that for a likable heroine these days or something. <laughs> right. So, like, what's the what's the um, Julie? What's the adaptation where it's just a woman who's rude to everyone? Bride and Prejudice. Oh, that was, that was the one from uh, 1940, actually. Huh. But like, that was yeah. It was like basically like Darcy is rude once, and then he's like he like. Makes that like he apologizes right away and is like super nice to her the entire other time and she just keeps being like really mean to him. <laughs> oh my gosh! And it's just yeah. That does kind of sound like Bride and Prejudice, though. I don't know, I like Bride and Prejudice. Was that the one with the one with the wind dresses? <laughs> yes, you're oh, right, yeah. Donna. That's exactly the one, the black was, and white one. Yeah, it was twenty years before that time. No, I was thinking of the modern interpretation with the woman who was trying to get her book published and she threw. Oh, butter the in Mormon her. one. Yes, yes, what? the Mormon yeah. one. Yeah, it's just called Pride and Prejudice, but it's like with Mormons. It's called yeah, a latter day comedy. It's called. Oh my god! It's with Mormons. It's awesome. But yeah, there's this whole thing where like she's trying, she's trying to get a book published, and like Darcy, <laughs> I forget if his name is actually Darcy in this, but like he owns like. He owns the uh, publishing company, and he like gives her these notes on her book, and like very helpful, constructive criticism. Yeah, he, he, like he asked her to make changes, and she's just like, "How dare you! I worked this on this book so like it was just like how not to be a professional writer one or one." And yeah, and so she just like seemed really stupid and immature, but whatever. Right? Yeah. So let's talk about why Prime Prejudice is not these things, right? And what it means to us, right? I actually have quite a long post about this on Tumblr that I wrote, oh, probably a year ago, um, about why Pride and Prejudice is not a romance novel. Um, because, like, romance novels and many modern adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, like, the point is the romance. Like, the, the main point is, like, the how these characters develop their feelings for each other. And the plot is constructed around, like, their the development of their feelings. But in, that is not at all the case in, in the book. <laughs> at all. Um, Which genre would you put it in then? Um, I mean, you've talked about it as... Mor- I mean, it's got elements of being a morality tale. I think it has elements of... Coming of age, maybe? Maybe. I mean, it's more of like a social... Yeah. Comedy commentary. of manners, I think, is a term that people use a lot. Yeah. I would... Yeah, I like that. And I wouldn't call it primarily a comedy either. No. Primarily. There's no. definitely as funny as fuck, but well, it's because the the protagonist is sort of an observer of human folly. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. But the the main the main like gist of the novel is her own moral development. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I think. I don't think it falls neatly into one particular genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely does not fall into a romance novel. <laughs> um, I mean, primarily because like we don't even know that Darcy has romantic feelings for like a lot of a lot of the story (laughs) um yeah and and he's a total dick about it (laughs) i mean he is he's kind of like i like you even though i shouldn't your family sucks and everyone sucks 
marry me anyway. Right. And he's just, yeah, and it's there's romance. like this implication that he just kind of wants to fuck her too, you know? Just, yeah. Right. Um, you know, like it's got all these other things like social concerns, like family and class and mm-hmm. social tension. And, um, like there's an element of female reputation and dependency and what that looks like in yeah. Regency society. Mm-hmm. Um, with, especially with Lydia. I mean, Lydia is, I mean, it's so much about female reputation, but all the other female characters, like it's a huge element of the novel is, that all of these women are really dependent on mm-hmm. their fathers and or the me- or in- and or the match they might make in order to really survive in this society like cuz there's no really no such thing as like a socially mobile spinster like mm-hmm. um I mean, it's something that Austin touches on in more or less all of her books yeah true like, like, Emma kind of does okay in the similar situation Mm-hmm. Well, Emma's, Emma's independently wealthy. Yeah. Even in that book, you know, you have Miss Bates, who, like, you know, grew up very well off, and then her father died, and she was basically fucked, you know? Like, she right. ended up, like, you know, on a few hundred pounds a year or whatever, living above a store with her elderly mother. <laughs> yeah, but isn't Emma independently wealthy because her dad didn't fuck things up as badly as the uh, better dad did or something? Mm. Um, I think, like... Yeah, well, he's he's like a much much wealthier than Mister Bennett. But one of the things that bugs me about a lot of adaptations is that like the Bennets are actually very well off. Like yeah. two thousand pounds a year is like it puts them in the top one percent for sure. Like they own a village basically, mm-hmm. and but yeah, it's it's like like their their problem basically was that they had no cash. All of their like all of like their income come, came from the land, right? And mm-hmm. there were there are very particular ways that land could be inherited. Basically, like you could like when you've died and passed on your land, you can decree how it will be inherited, like, several generations down the line and things like that. So... But the father didn't do that? Like, yeah. And he didn't bother to save any cash because he expected to have a son. Yes, this passage, I remember that because there was supposed yeah. to be a son and then maybe the next one, maybe the next mm-hmm. one, oh, we have five daughters now. Okay, I guess they're screwed. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, and the biggest part for me that, like, so many adaptations ignore is that Austin foregrounds the compatibility in... Darcy and Lizzie's intellect and personality rather than romance. Um, and I mean, so this is how I would think about it is like, this is a story about what Austin perceived to be the best kind of marriage. Mm-hmm. Yes. And her whole point is that an overly romantic relationship is imbalanced and problematic. Like Lydia and Wickham is entirely about like feelings. Yeah. Like, <laughs> well, it's about his penis feelings and about yeah. her feeling feelings. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of that whirlwind, you know, ro- mm-hmm. like attraction, whatever. Like what we would probably On call side it is romantic. On Wickham's side, it's about exploitation. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yep. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Yep. Um, Taking and- advantage of a teenage girl. It's uh, yes, because yeah. he's gross. Um, <laughs> and then on the other hand, you have like an overly pragmatic marriage exactly. with Collins and Charlotte, like. And then, again, you have the contrast with, like, a marriage where there is no compatibility in personality and intellect with Lizzie's parents, Mr. and Mrs. Bennett. So, for Austin, a good marriage is one that balances all of those things. You have the intellect and personality compatibility, you have practical concerns, and you have affection. So, like, that really is what Pride and Prejudice is about, is, like, a healthy marriage, like, balances all of these concerns and 
it's basically the counterpoint to this modern interpretation we have where it's all like money will make you happy and all you need is love and it's like mm -hmm. well uh, you yeah. also kind of need the means to feed yourself i hear that's great and mm -hmm. um, a thing really that uh, <laughs> poor couple are more likely to break up because of the lack of financial security so yeah it's nice mm -hmm. to have and it's kind of nice to see that aspect represented somewhere at least and it's a 300 year old novel who would have thought Right. <laughs> and again, it's like, this is a theme that keeps cropping up in every single one of her books. Right. Um, like, you know, you can't build a marriage on just, like, one thing. Like, it has to have, it has to have, like, it, it's, it's a, it's something that's arrived at by two reasonable people. Mm hmm. You know, it's like, the affection is important and it's necessary, but just the whole idea is, that women, especially, can make reasonable decisions for themselves. Right. And, like, the decision about who to marry is, like, one of the few decisions that women were really empowered to make at that point. Right. Yeah. Because, I mean, Lizzie turns down mm -hmm. two very um, financially beneficial marriage proposals. Like, first from Mr. Collins and then, for, like, her first refusal of Darcy. Like, she turns them down because she doesn't believe that money is enough. Which, given the situation the family is in, is also sort of irresponsible. I mean, this is never dealt with in the adaptations so far, except for the Lizzie Bennet diaries, which I will totally stand for, by the way. Um, yes. That with that one marriage, or with the exception of Mr. Darcy <laughs> the first time, Lizzie could have basically saved her entire family. <sighs> her older sister yeah, but, like, There's something immoral about that, you know? Like, there's something that was selfish kind of... about it. And I think it's sort of rare, especially given what we like and what no, what happened to heroines after that era, that the that the female lead character gets to make selfish decisions and be fra and be not be framed like the most horrible human being ever. Mm. Yeah. Right. And like, there's this whole thing. Like, um, it's actually one of the few seeds that didn't make it into the Holy Grail of PMP adaptations, <laughs> the 1995 uh, series. At the very end of the book, where uh, after Mr. Darcy talks to Mr. Bennett. And he's talking to Elizabeth and he's quite shocked that she's accepted Mr. Darcy's proposal. He, he basically says that what he's worried about is her being so unhappy in a marriage that she'll like, you know, commit adultery and be fucked. That's <laughs> basically what he says. And like, I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's that angle too when she, uh, when she refused Mr. Collins, you know, like just the idea that like her soul was at stake because Austin, mm -hmm. Austin had very deep religious convictions. And when you read a book like Mansfield Park, for example, it's very apparent. Yeah, yeah. just like the kind of the kind of visceral terror of being so unhappy that you would be driven to that kind of extremity is always kind of there as well. Mm -hmm. Yep, the extremity yep. of adultery. Yep. I mean, have you read Mansfield Park? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> it, that is the hardest one I think to adapt to a modern audience. Oh, one day I have to write about the absolutely horrible 1999 uh, Mansfield Park. Which I can barely. But that, that I, I would really Piper. <laughs> no, that's that one's not much better. But yeah, it's the one where they basically like. Well, the thing is that Fanny Price is just the antithesis of what we think a woman should be. Right. Like yep. she's she's Jesus basically. Like she just like she's like you know Cinderella. She just like takes shit all the time and just keeps like she's just the ultimate whoopee. But yeah, it's the the religious themes <laughs> of that book are very apparent. Yeah, will be. Yeah, but it's impossible. Yeah, like nobody wants to adapt that, but like they feel they should because it's an Austin book. So it's just like, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. The only mm-hmm. good adaptation I've ever seen of it is actually from uh, 1983. I think it was an ITV production. I could be making that up. Is that the miniseries? Yeah, it's, it's a miniseries. Of course it, it is. I think, I think that's, um, I think that might be a, well, there's a BBC one that I think is good. Um, for the most part. Uh, but yeah, we, we can move on. Um, <laughs> uh, Mansfield Park. So, like, another part that I think is really interesting that about Pride and Prejudice is the way it exists in context with other novels that were being written prior to, to mm-hmm. Austin writing. And one of the main questions was, um, like, can you reform a rake? Rake meaning, like, asshole, yeah. basically. Like, um, can you, like, can you reform a douchebag? <laughs> and, like, when you read Pride and Prejudice, like, the answer is obviously no. Yeah. You can't. Because that's Wickham. Like, Wickham is the definition Important of point, a rake. Darcy is not the douchebag in the scenario. It's yeah. Yeah. Well, adaptations yeah. He's not. Yeah, he's socially awkward. And- no, he's just an INTJ. He's socially he's awkward and gets nervous around people. But he's never actually an yeah. asshole. At least not on purpose. Yeah, like, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Dorne in A Song of Ice and Fire, how, like, once you re- get really into the material, you kind of realize that Arya and Dorne are the same character. It's kind of mm-hmm. the same thing with, like, Lizzie and Darcy. Oh. Like, right. you know, people are like, well, you know, he's the pride and she's the prejudice. Like, no, they're both, both. <laughs> That's the <Yeah>. point. <laughs> he's also prejudiced yeah. against her family and she is yeah. very prideful. And yeah. So- yeah. yeah. Right. So, like... It's funny because, like, in modern romance novels, we answer that question the opposite. Ugh. Like, if 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 someone were trying to write this story now, I I bet, like, I would lay money that this is how it would go. Like, Wickham would fall for Lizzie, and um, she would like resist him for a while, and he might even oh, do God. something awful, and then he would realize that mm-hmm. he just needs a good woman in his life, and she would reform him. Uh, you've seen and Lost in Austin, would right? Save him from his darkness or whatever. Right. I I watched <laughs> what, about. What did she get out of that? <laughs> I watched about twenty minutes of Lost in Austin before I just could not handle it. So I don't know how that goes. Well, she doesn't end up with Wickham. in leather pants. Yeah, he, yeah, he's yeah, he's definitely in leather pants with a flower crown. And... Uh... <laughs> uh, you know what? We're gonna link this. Did anyone watch Austin Land? No, I've heard of Austin Land. I have never brought myself to actually watch it. It's not that bad, actually. <laughs> like the theme park thing, right? Yeah, yeah it's like a theme park. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a theme park where they sell this idea of romance to single people. Oh my god. And they I examine. It. I'm sorry, continue. It's, <laughs> it's better than it sounds because it examines what's wrong with the, with this premise at all. And, um, they also do this, the asshole thing that who is not redeemable and actually the actor while the actual guy who appears to be the asshole is kind of nice and it's, uh, a bit, one of the clever adaptations. It has its, its very cringy moments where it gets too much with a second and embarrassment, but I think it was rather poignant. Mm. Like, had a poignancy that most of the modern, we pretend to be Pride and Prejudice adaptations mm. don't really get. Mm. Mm-hmm. But you have to dig deep under all the silliness around it, so. Right, right. So, like, that's one of the things I love about Pride and Prejudice is it, like, because I am so tired of the idea that, like, women exist to reform bad men um and so sad that this is a thing still or again or whatever it is no still for sure oh yeah um but what 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 is a little weird gretchen i will say is that this this was kind of just like throw money at the problem of bad men if we're gonna go with a takeaway 
Well, like there was no other solution, you know? Right. Like, like that's. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and when you read it, I think you're supposed to feel. Well, like, I'm going to say supposed to be on how awful a situation this is for Lydia. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. I mean, I, like, we talked about like this asshole because yeah. that's the only solution available to her. We talked about how like this yeah. has a lot to do with like the, the gothic genre, but there's also, there was a thing called like the seduction genre. Mm. It was basically about like, you know, a little, like uh, a a woman or a girl, like, you know, her downfall because of some rake, basically. Mm-hmm. And usually how it ended is the woman dies, usually in childbirth, and oh. then mm-hmm. the guy spends the rest of his life, like, regretting it and being melancholy. Mm. So it was basically about how this, like, how, like, the, the woman's life and her body was used to teach this dude a the lesson. Man pain. Right. Yeah, the right. man pain, basically. Well, and she's being punished for, um, you know, what we would call like sexual misconduct or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, like, you know, they're almost always like young girls. Yeah. Like, like yep. 15. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's a yeah. So I mean, I'm grateful that Austin doesn't, yeah, that Austin doesn't go that route. Like, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to like, I think, I think modern interpretations skew our perception of just how different, Austin is from even a lot of the media that we consume, mm-hmm. especially a lot of media that is written, supposedly written for women that we're, you know, mm-hmm. supposed to enjoy. That I'm sure many women enjoy, and I don't judge that. It's just like I don't enjoy, you know, stories about assholes that just need a nice woman in their life <laughs> and they'll change. Uh, um, I want, uh, before we move on, I want uh, Kylie to talk about her Charlotte Lucas theory. <laughs> oh, it's not a theory. It's, I mean, I don't think Austin intended this. Although, wasn't it Lost in Austin where um, Caroline Bingley was a lesbian, right? And then she comes and, and played she, it for hit, laughs. she hits on Lizzie and then uh, when she leaves, or whatever the main character's name was, what's, what was her Amanda. name? Amanda. Amanda. And when she leaves Amanda's yeah. like, I'm sure Jane Austen would have been shocked to know she wrote that. Yeah. <laughs> Julia's oh commentary on it was like, really? Because I'm pretty sure Jane Austen knew lesbians existed. Yeah. <laughs> No, but it's it's not really a theory. It's, it's just that uh, I was thinking about Charlotte Lucas and how it's possible there's the space that she actually is a little bit in love with Lizzie oh. and that a lot of her actions, like even marrying Collins, could be read as like her trying to protect Lizzie in a way. And it's just, it's not, it's, it doesn't do anything. It's just like this kind of depressing tone. Well... But, that's my headcanon for hers. That's lesbian Charlotte Lucas. I totally headcanon that. Lizzie is, I think Charlotte is doing that she's doing this, like when she takes in Mr. Collins after the proposal was turned down, that she does this to protect Lizzie from the awkwardness of having him around. And then it's yeah. like supposed to be this twist that she does this to be yeah. opportunistic and marry the man instead or something. Well, I mean, I think it depends because there's a lot of adaptations that sort of paint her as like really opportunistic. There's mm-hmm. other adaptations that like the 2005 adaptation drove me crazy because it like painted her as like a bag woman and just <laughs> horribly dowdy and awful. It's like poor Charlotte. Like, she doesn't need to be. 
She's only 26. Like, she's she not, like, crappy. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't need to be crapped on like this. Um, like everything else. You should have seen her last in Austin. Oh, my God. <laughs> the, uh. the 1995 adaptation was obviously perfect when she and Lizzie are just clearly friends. But, like, if you watch the 95 adaptation, too, there's sort of ways she looks at her. And actually, I think what started me shipping them was making gifts of her for the gift caps I do of Julia's fanfic. <laughs> so I think oh that's my God. I that lady, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember you posted something about that and I was like, oh my gosh. Uh, yes. Yes. It's the thing you never knew you needed, but then the more you start thinking yep. about it, the more you're like, I, I need this. I think this sort of works for the Lizzie yep. Bennet diaries as well, where their fight is not about marrying a man, but accepting a job. But when they are yelling at each other, when Lizzie is very personally disappointed and it's get, it gets vicious. It gets, it gets really vicious on a very personal level that's a bit over the top when it's just about your best friend accepting a job. Oh. Yeah. Either way, I thought, Julia, I thought you were going to make me talk about Jar Jar Binks added as Jane, but. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, it, there, are, there are a few adaptations uh... that would improve, for sure. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> we have oh, an entire tag of Pride and Prejudice on the Fundamentals. <laughs> check it out. <laughs> you should check it out. Pride and Prejudice, 10 things I would rather see added to Pride and Prejudice than Zombies was where Jar Jar Binks oh, came yeah, out that's of. Right. But it, he actually works oddly well in the role of Jane. I was <laughs> oh my god. Jane is just there for moral support. I'm not romantic, you know. I never was. Speaking of adaptations, um, so this is part two of our ongoing series about uh, David O. Shelsnick's and his maximum adaptations, which, if you remember from last time, was... Uh, this is deconstructing a memo that he wrote uh, while completely high as a kite, uh, where he talks about the adaptation of Gone with the Wind. And so Maxim number two says, I feel, too, that we should not attempt to correct seeming faults of construction. I have learned to avoid trying to improve success. So basically, when you're faced with adapting a work that is less than perfect, like if it's Northanger Abbey, for example, you know, uh, it's tempting, especially if, you know, you're you have some faith in your own skill as a writer, for example, to think like, huh, you know, maybe I could switch this around. I could like, you know, foreshadow this a little more and do this and that and maybe change this scene from this scene and just like, you know, I can fix this. I can make it even better. Um, Shelznick is of the opinion that you should avoid doing that. And his argument is basically just like, you know, when you have, when you have a piece of media, often what makes it work, like the combination of like, you know, tone and dialogue and all that, that it's a little bit ineffable. And you, if you go changing things, you might unknowingly just get rid of exactly what it is that made it a successful oh, yeah. scene, a successful book. Mm. And um, appropriately, he, he also actually explicitly talks about, kind of, you know, hubris <laughs> mm. and, how that's kind of always inherent when you think that you're so awesome that you can fix something, something that's successful enough to merit an adaptation. Uh, and you really shouldn't court that kind of hubris. I mean, like, uh, has, has anyone here read Gone of the Wind? I've only seen it. And I was younger oh. and it was not the most fun thing to sit through as a five-year-old. Neither is the book. The <laughs> book is kind of like not all that good. Like, it's not terrible, terrible, but it's very long-winded, and the protagonist is just a despicable person, 
and like the author's racist and <laughs> you're just like uh but and <laughs> You know, uh, we're going to talk later on in the series about, like, adapting characters and whitewashing, things like that, too. But Chelsea was, like, you know, there there was, there was you know, some kind of famous changes that were made. Like, uh, two of her children were kind of just streamlined out and things like that. And there's, like, entire kind of sections that just, like, they didn't go down that subplot path. But in general, he uh, he kept the kind of, like, you know, the, the imbalance of the plotting and things like that. And... You know, and it was, you know, the movie was even more successful than the book. And the book was like the blockbuster book of its time. You know, it was, it was the book that everybody was reading in those, in those few years. And yeah, like, you know, Shelsick knew what he was talking about is the point. And, but, um, you know, for an example, I think is kind of relevant, uh, the Twilight movies. A lot of people are surprised to learn that the screenwriter for the Twilight movies is the same person who wrote Jessica Jones. Which like blew my mind I when I it's just the first Twilight. I could be wrong. Just about the that. first Twilight. Yeah. I think she did all of them. Did she? I'll look yep. it up. Yeah. Yeah. Melissa Rosenberg is her name, and you know she obviously is capable of more than Twilight, but Twilight ended up being a very faithful adaptation. You know, like you're right. Horrible. You're right, all of them. Yeah. Horrible characterization and just really poor pacing and all. And it ended up being like, you know, a very successful movie because whatever it was that drew people to the book also drew them to the movie. I, I will basically. actually say there was one notable change that she made in the first one. I wish I didn't yeah. know this, but I know this. Okay. Where in the first book, basically you read three quarters of it and then all of a sudden evil vampires are introduced and you're like, where the fuck did this come from? In the right. first movie, there's intercut scenes of evil vampires doing evil things so it's not exactly out of nowhere yeah yeah she just she moved it around but that was like really the only notable change because i have to imagine all i remember i saw the movie where bella's pregnant and that's the plot line and (laughs) there's a giant fighting argument between two of edward's sisters and one of them is like the fetus is killing her and the other one is like say baby it's a baby yeah, yeah. i have to imagine that was adapted from the books <laughs> oh yes 100 percent adapted from the books i have yeah. read them all i am ashamed to say um didn't they also add like a giant scene to the very last movie um where everyone kind of died and then it turned out it would just be a vision where in the books it's just this could happen and then they sit down and talk yes that is the one that is the one part where i think she did improve <laughs> um because I don't think it's hubristic to think you can improve Twilight, though. That's fair, but like, but like, she did very, she did very little changing mm-hmm. to it. Like that really is the only major change she made, and it wasn't even so much of a change. I mean, that's so more much just like a visual a, thing. Like, right? How did it because, work in the books? You just like, like, what's her face said? Like, we could all die, therefore we shouldn't fight. Yeah, in the books, like. Um, and the reason it was more successful was because it was something that everyone wanted. Was in the books you have, in the the final book you have this lead up, you meet, so part of the world building is like, some vampires have like special powers, uh, never explains why they do, but they do, um, and so you meet all of these cool vampires that have these really badass powers and you hear about how the evil vampires have really cool powers, and as I was reading, I was like, dude, this fight is gonna be like, amazing this might even make this book worthwhile to see a really cool fight between a bunch of vampires with really awesome powers and then 
um, mm-hmm. it never happens. <laughs> like, they go to Parley and, like, the evil vampires have a conversation with Alice, who's the one who can see the future, and then they back down. So you could say it's implied that she gave him a vision of what the possible outcome of their battle would be, is, but it's not actually written in the text. Weird choice. So her including that, yeah, her including that scene, like, is a good choice because it was really unsatisfying to read the book and be like, "I'm expecting this really co- awesome fight," and then get nothing. So it wasn't dramatically satisfying of the source material. No. <laughs> Go through the trouble of setting all of this up, and I've seen—I've not read the book, but I've seen it—and it's like really, really thick. So I suppose there's a lot of time devoted to introducing all of these characters and their powers, and then never use them. Yep. Right. Why right. would you do that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> because, because she's not that. Was great she of a paid writer. by the page, or? <laughs> but we're but we're trying to say that she didn't improve. She, or rather, the adapter didn't change much of it. Like Right, yeah. that, like, her overall approach, aside really from this one thing, like, her overall approach was just be like, here's what it is. Take it for what it is. Exactly. I mean, like, like the idea is that when you're making an adaptation mm. of, you know, a book, it's usually a book, um, that, like, you know, its faults are part of the book, you know? Like, right. they're part of, like, you can't separate what made the book successful and what made it unsuccessful. Hey, hey, now, hey now, does that mean that Tom Bombadil should have been included in the Lord of the Rings movies? <laughs> I mean, you could make, I mean, like, that's, there are maxims that argue that he should have been and maxims that argue that he shouldn't be. And that's you know, the decision you have to make. Right. But there's no such thing as a perfect all. adaptation. Mm-hmm. Except for the 1995 Five, I was about to say. <laughs> Yeah. We just talked about to it. Bring it all back around. <laughs> it's all connected. <laughs> I'm, um, we all want to talk about Game of Thrones, so let's just talk about Game of Thrones. Okay, so the uh, what, the one choice that they made that was a violation of this maxim, and I think to the most egregious level. And feel free to disagree with me if you think there was something else they did that was worse. But was their decision that they needed someone who wasn't Jane Poole to be in Jane Poole's position because we couldn't care about Jane Poole, so they just popped sense on yes. him. Yes. <laughs> Fix that. Woo, now there's buy-in. I mean, yeah. I, I think... I just thought if you weren't going to say this, I would bring it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the example I was actually thinking of is the kind of... It's it's not as bad as that example by any means, but it's kind of a little more cut and dry, where they basically said that they only had Tyrion and Danny meet because <laughs> they wanted it to happen. It felt, it felt like they should have. Yeah, it, like, like it, it's, it, uh, that was like very explicitly, we're fixing a mistake that the original right. source material had. That's true, you're right about that. But it's not, it's not as bad as sending Sansa to Winterhelf, so <laughs> I can't argue with you there. To a smaller degree, I think that's also what they were going for with the with the scenes between Aya and Tywin, which make no <gasps> sense. <gasps> yes. I forgot about those. Right. That's a really yeah, good point. You're exactly right, Yana. That's exactly what they were going I mean, for. Is they believed that like having them together would be better than the source material. And it just makes both of them stupid. It makes them look like idiots. Both. But Maisie Williams and Charles Dance sold the hell out of those scenes. And then yeah. you sit back and you think about it, and you're like, why is Tywin pouring out his soul to a cupbearer? Like, what? A cupbearer that he knows is probably from the north of noble heritage and probably doesn't feel very good about this war he started with her homeland that she's a refugee of, which he knows. And he, he knows Arya's her. missing. Yeah, that too. And he tells her he knows all this th- these things about her and he still lets her in on, on council meetings? There's 
There's a lot right. she could have done besides messing up mail there. Just saying. Right, right. Or, or where's the other, uh, Brienne and the Hound. It's yeah. Another one of those decisions oh. where they oh, were like, no. would, like, it would be so much better if Brienne and the Hound got to have a fight. Which made them both look like idiots because they started fighting for no reason. Like, Brienne could have said anything to him (laughs) besides what she said, but then they just were like, drew their swords, and they're like, okay. Um, I think Danny and Tyrion, though, because, yeah, there's a quote where they just baldly say it didn't feel right that they didn't in A Dance with Dragons. And that, if anyone remembers, when Danny and Tyrion, like, met at the end of the gift and he walks out, he goes, I am the gift, and there's triumphant music that plays, and you're like, oh my god. But the next episode was Hard Home, and their scene is literally them, like, loafing in chairs, looking bored with each <laughs> other, and not talking about anything of consequence. I mean, so George R. Martin does have serendipitous meetings. Like, there's the infamous one in A Game of Thrones where Tyrion and Catelyn meet in a pub. But there's also, like, you know, uh, Sam and Arya meeting up in Bravos and things like that. So it's not like he never uses the whole, like, of all the Jindoids trope ever. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, like, yeah. Of, of all the random fighting pits outside of Marine. Yeah. <laughs> Game of Thrones takes it to a whole new level. Well, can we think of any specific times where they, like, because part of the maxim is, like, fa- seeming faults. Not just, like, we can do this better. Yeah. Like, the story's fine and we can do it better. But, like, are there any... I'm trying to think if there are any situations where, like, D&D try and fix a problem. Nobody caring about Jane Poole, apparently, was a problem to them. And uh, it was also a problem that Sansa was in the veil and she wasn't in the action, quote-unquote, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we could we could talk about Game of Thrones. You know that we could talk about Game of Thrones all day. We are going to direct you to the other podcast that we have on the site. Well, one of the others, <laughs> uh, the Unabashed Book Snobbery Podcast, where we talk about nothing but Game of Thrones um, and the Sound of Ice and Fire occasionally. But yeah, we we gotta get a move on and get into our last segment. You're a Northerner, aren't you? Good. So for the last segment, we are going to be focusing in on one show that we talk about quite a bit on the fundamentals and on the fundamentalist too. We just don't shut up about it. Yeah. Sometimes even on Unabashed Book Summary, uh, which is Steven Universe. If you Yay. don't watch Steven Universe, pause this podcast and go watch all 100 something episodes. They're 10 minute episodes. You can do it. Really it won't take you that long. It is a children's TV show on Cartoon Network, but it speaks to our souls. And yes. it's actually incredibly intelligent and handles really oh. heavy subjects oh, with yes. a lot of uh, deftness. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Yana and I actually, be, right before recording this, we just watched the most recent episode. Well, it'll, it'll be the second mm-hmm. most recent episode by the time it's released with uh, really? Rose... They have a yeah. schedule now? Yeah, there's another episode coming out. There's there's another oh one coming God. out this Friday. When, so we're recording on a Wednesday. So there's one coming out Friday, and the podcast will be released on Monday. Some time travel stuff. <laughs> but yeah, we just watched, we just watched the really heavy episode with, uh, I don't even know what it's called, but it's the one where- Storm, Storm in the room. room. Yeah, and Rose pulls the football away from Steven, and it's uh-huh. just- <sighs> Yeah. It's a symbolic Everything football. said in this room is just so creepy by default. Yeah. And I love- yeah. I, I just love how you could tell that, like, what she was saying was Stephen's thoughts, the way that they had her speak. Yep. So perfect. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about shipping on this show, which... uh, A very particular one. Yeah, you know, you would have thought that this was kind of a little bit of an unshippable program when you first start watching it. And you're going to be like, people actually (laughs) 
do this. Oh boy. But trust me, fuel. And people yep, ship us on ice and fire. That's so. true. That's that's Maybe. the least shippable piece of media ever. Except for Damien. Except for Damien. I know. We're not going to go down that <laughs> rabbit hole, darling. Uh, Stop it. But no, the, the, the ship we want to talk about specifically is between Lapis Lazuli and Peridot. It is called Lapidot for reasons. I guess Paris was no good. <laughs> oh, that's so much better. Right. Oh, I think it. I think it came because of Amidot. Right. So Amidot like, because you is... had Amid- Amethyst and Peridot. So you had Amidot first, mm-hmm. I think. And then Lapidot was yeah, you did because then well, Lapis was like off screen for a really long time. Yep. Because uh, she was trapped in a mirror, then she was trapped at the bottom of the sea. And it could be clear. I know. Um, now this ship is one of some controversy in the fandom. And we'll just breeze by this section before we can jump into why we're pretty fond of Labadot. I think. Yeah. Right? Wait, am I speaking for... Yeah. You guys are cool with it, right? Yeah, okay, good. I'm cool with I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't feel strongly about it. Yeah. As long as they're not strongly negative. However, the people that wanted Amethyst and Peridot to be together were strongly negative about this ship, largely, and as well as some others. Um... Which I didn't even know Amethyst and Peridot was a thing, but it it was. And it got to the point where one of the people of the Crewniverse who worked on this episode or wrote this episode was bullied off of Tumblr or harassed off of Tumblr, basically, by people shouting at her for queer baiting because... Yes, you do. Because <sighs> Amadot was queer baiting and then she went in the Lapidot direction or something. I believe that you're talking about Lauren. I think her last name is pronounced Zook. Zook. Or- Lauren Zook. Yes. Zook. Lauren Zook. And it was her Twitter. Yes. Like, and she's the story. She was a storyboard artist. Uh-huh. Um, and she had tweeted some positive things about Lapidot because she's a shipper, which, I mean, you're allowed to ship characters you work on. Oh, like, yeah. you are yeah. allowed to do that. That's perfectly acceptable. But that was not perfectly acceptable for some segments of fandom who decided that the fact that she shipped it meant that like she was biased somehow and had like forced Lapidot instead of Am- Amadot. I don't <laughs> yeah. I don't even understand why I mean I don't get shipping wars anyway but like this is one of those ones that I really don't understand. Well you know someone who does get shipping wars is <laughs> Yana. Yes. Our oh did we invite her on the podcast? Oh my god. Maybe specifically to talk about it? Um I guess that's what I do now. <laughs> uh, she wrote a piece on Zutar which I'll link but yeah. Yeah that you got more hate for than I did by the way. Okay, well, that's because, like, I read your piece and then I started going off about Katayn on my Tumblr. <laughs> Which you told me not to do for my piece, by the way. Just Yes, I, I keep it profesh, but... No, I, I mean, what what are what are your thoughts on this whole Lapidot, Abadot situation? Well, on the situation in the show, it's that I didn't really see the Amadot. It's just... I mean, yeah, they were the first... Amethyst was the first gem Peridot got along with without being rude to her, but this was still because of her, you know, upbringing with all the prejudices going on there. But I didn't really see it. Um, but regarding Peridot, it's something I do see, but mostly because they went from being confrontational and barnmates to just being uh, basically married. 
<laughs> yeah. No further on-screen developments. I'm very sympathetic to the complaints that it came out of nowhere, if they were actually a thing, but so far they're just living together and raising pumpkins together and occasionally pitching in. <laughs> I think it was a little jarring. Like, the episode that Lauren Zook yeah. You know, storyboarded. It was a little jarring just to see them making meat morphs together, in a way. Yeah, it was jarring, but also kind of sweet. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, very sweet. Say. Well, and so, um, I will be on. like, I have, maybe I'll write this for Monday. That would be timely. Um, Ooh, same day. Because I have, um, a whole document of notes about their off-screen healing arc. And when you, when you line the beats up, they work ish. Um, like in the sense that like when you line up like the parts of the, the episodes where we see them, um, not necessarily together, but like even putting in the, the episodes where like one of them appears and the other, other one doesn't. Like after Barnmates, um, we have hit the diamond and like that their relationship has evolved, you know, like, Lapis ends up saving Peridot's life in in bar at the end of Barnmates. Then you have hit the diamond where like they've kind of settled into this. They're not really talking to each other thing. Um, and then right after that, we have two different episodes where like Peridot in Too Short to Ride, like she deals with some of her struggles, which are like feeling overlooked and inadequate. Um, which is part of why she was trying. I think trying so hard to get Lapis's approval and forgiveness. Yes. Um, and then you, you also then have Alone at Sea, where Lapis is facing her abuser and choosing healing. So you have episodes where both of these characters separately are, like, going through steps of healing. And then, after that, you have Beta, which is where you have the meat morphs and them <laughs> making art together. Which is just my favorite thing. I've seen analysis of some of the scenes where, for example, Peridot asks Lapis to fly in and Lapis goes like, no. Um, which someone has written up on Tumblr. I know it's bad sourcing, sorry. Um, how this is basically uh, giving <laughs> Lapis the opportunity to just say no without consequences or anything as part of this healing arc. To just show her that she has the agency to do so mm -hmm. now and it's no big deal that she asserts herself in this way. Maybe reading a bit into mm -hmm. this, but it's I don't know, on theme, I guess. Right, yeah. And the, and how Peridot just keeps checking in is adorable. Are you okay with me leaving? Are you, are you going to be okay? Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I loved yeah. that. I loved that because, like, Lapis was getting annoyed. She's like, yes, yes, it's fine. But I just, I loved her being like, all right, well, I'm going to go then. <laughs> like, all of that it was so cute. Right. I mean, and all, I mean, my whole point was, like, there, I am sympathetic to the perception that a lot of it happened off screen because uh -huh. a lot of it did. Yeah. I think that you have to, you have that rule in Steven universe that it's obvious from Steven's point of view, right? Right. Yeah. So we're not going to interact with Lapis and Peridot unless they're interacting with Steven for the most part. Yeah. So Connie's telling a story. <laughs> apparently. Right. Yeah. Unless Connie. Yeah. Well, that's still um, Steven's POV. Yeah. So like what, yes, we're not getting as much as, I mean, even I would like, I would love to see more of their arc but it's it's there when you line up when you line up all of their interactions and all of their parts in the story you can see you can see the arc even if it's just sketchy like we're getting snapshots into a story that's being told in the background um but it is i think being consistently told we're just not getting all of that information on screen so 
No, go ahead. My kind of quibble with this entire discourse is the use of the term queer baiting. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Like, oh my god. Well, what is that? And who? Yeah, who thought it was appropriate to use in this context? Well, uh, I've had this conversation with Corey and Elizabeth about Supergirl. Um, and even Kylie and I have talked about it about Supergirl because this is the show that I can't go like a single episode of this without mentioning. Um, yeah, but hey, you made it over an hour into this episode. I know, before. right? Yeah, so we're good. Better than us at Game of Thrones. I was about sure. to say. So, I think a huge piece of it is that like queer baiting is kind of a hot button term right now, and it encapsulates a lot of frustration and anger. So if people can call something queer baiting, they it validates their frustration, if that makes sense. Like I'm really mad, you will know you will have sympathy for me if I tell you that I feel queer baited. But like queer baiting is not the lack of consummation of any ship between two yeah. like yeah. characters of this like like any like femme slash ship that isn't canon, like that's not queer baiting. It's not queer baiting to have like the potential for a relationship and not follow through on it. No, like that—that no. that is not queer baiting. Oh wow, well, it can be, but it's not necessarily. It can be, but like queer baiting the way it has been understood, the way I've understood it, and the way I've talked about it in some of my pieces, like when I when I talked about Lexa and the hundred, is queer baiting is when showrunners and producers um, set up the story in such a way that you can see. The potential for a relationship between either two male or two female characters, or any combination thereof, um, in terms of queer, like, and yeah. they do it without ever having the intention of following through, with the intention of, like, trying to bring in an audience. Queer baiting is dangling a carrot that you have no intention of giving someone. Yeah, or I would still call, you know, even though the hundred technically followed through on that carrot, I would still call that queer baiting. <laughs> yeah, they followed through for, like, five minutes. Like, three seconds later, yeah. Steve Universe just, like, does such interesting things with gender, you know? And especially right. considering the fact, like, if this is, like, you know, a war between the Amidots and people and the Lapidot people, like, they're both same-sex ships yeah. as far as that's meaningful in this well, context. I think what they were saying is that because Amidot didn't happen, the one moment where, like, they fell on top of each other was therefore queerbaiting, and that's just... Uh-huh completely misapplying that term that's not you know what that, that reminds me that reminds me of uh arrested development where uh uh job and what's his face um uh, the other magician oh, guy right tony yeah. wonder yeah they're like i have feelings for you <laughs> and then the narrator too. said that feeling was friendship but neither of them had ever experienced it before <laughs> yeah, yeah but, oh, i mean that's, that's very gal pally but i think in this context it's appropriate well it's just like again there can not everything is queer baiting. Like yes. even if if there's a potential romance hinted at and not followed through, that doesn't automatically make it queer baiting because oh, sometimes God. people just don't get together. I want to yell like... at my current fandom so loudly, like uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's like a very geek and niche thing, but it's a thing that has uh, where basically no one of the main characters is actually straight, but because they don't all end up with people from the opposite sex, the the Fandom goes off at the actors themselves. It's an improv show, so that's sort of the right address, in a way, if you're into harassing the creators. <laughs> about, oh my god, why are you not committing to this? Why is this only an aside? Are you queerbaiting me? Is this queerbaiting? It's not, because it's not queerbaiting oh if the creators of the show 
uh, actually plan on following through on some of the queer relationships and don't use it to drag in the audience and to string them along, which is, I think, where Supernatural is on, on the air or something. Yeah. Yeah. It really does have that aspect of, like, you know, baiting, you know, trying to get well, a particular section of the audience invested in your show. And to, to me, where queer baiting gets hairy is, like, that line between slow burn mm. and we're never following through. Mm-hmm. Like, that's where I think there's room for debate, but not when it's something like fucking Amadot. Like, <laughs> it's not, yeah, if there's one interaction between two characters and you decide to ship it and then the the creators don't follow through on that, like, you are not queer baited. It's not queer baiting to, like, have two female characters inter- or, like, coded female characters interact yeah. with each other and then not have them get together. Like- and it's especially misapplied to a show that has been so not subtle about romantically involved fem- female coded characters on basically every other right. corner and of it. And that's what gets me. It's like, oh, Steven Universe is so good for queer representation mm-hmm. that, like, calling Steven Universe a queer baiting show just, like, defies belief to me it's like this is a show that like <laughs> the major romantic relationship is queer yeah like well even if you want to look at you know steven and connie's relationship their fusion is clearly you know it's you know a, a proxy non- for, yeah not non-gender yeah. binary conforming so like right it just in general with what this show does like julie said it does so much interesting with gender and with yeah. sexuality but uh, another thing, too, you know, I, I think I'm more sympathetic to the people that say, like, we deserve, if if you're just going to act as if Lapis and Peridot are married, Absolutely. we deserve to see that be explicitly romantic. I think yeah. I'm more sympathetic to that. Oh, yeah, totally. Yep. But I don't know that that's ruled out yet. I like, don't think so. Right, because that's the other thing with 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 the accusation of queer baiting it is is that it is often lobbied before a story is finished right like, at least i'm seeing that more and more that like people are accusing shows of queer baiting before an arc is done like you can't sometimes you can explicitly call like you can tell something is queer baiting Marjorie oh, from yes, the get go yes. yes um but other times like like you pointed out Kylie you don't know the difference between a slow burn mm-hmm. and you know, like, Lapis and Peridot's arc hasn't finished yet. We have no idea where they are in their... I mean, we have some idea where they are in their relation relationship, regardless if it's, mm. if it's romantic or not. But, like, we could still get romantic Lapidot. We could still get that. Oh, okay. Um. Well, and given the... What we saw... What we seen in the Mo- more recent episode, where they got into a very childish fight and all that, I don't think they're anywhere yeah. where we can call any shots in yet. Like, they're not together, and they're right. just maybe on a way there, it's implied, but there's still so much room for development that we can that it can be shown, so it's not like it's a done deal, and we just never got to, mm-hmm. got to see any of it, and I don't think that's what the show would go for anyhow. No. No, no. And I kind of love that they give them these moments of pettiness after, like, everything <laughs> they're going through, and then they're just, like, fucking up a car wash, and you're like, okay, <laughs> of course this is happening. No, and, and, and I think that there is a fair point, too, that, you know, maybe... Oh, the story's not told yet. The story's not told yet. Maybe I think that gets stretched out for too long. You can start to be like, you know what? I'm feeling a little like led on by this, or at least I'm feeling enough is enough. This is ridiculous. And that's. Is there a specific thing in mind that you are thinking about right now? What? I'm glad you mentioned it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Adventure Time is right on that line for me right now, where I'm like, either show that 
Marceline and Bubblegum are clearly together, which they clearly are together, and they basically got back together at the end of Stakes, or just like stopped, just stop doing this. Because having them in the background together on the obvious dates is cute, but you need to freaking show us. Right. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's that's where I'm right on the line. And I know that Adventure Time's ending, so, like, I, it it is very much a, well, at least I have a finite period to wait and see. <laughs> yeah. But if this was a show that I thought was going to be ongoing longer and longer, I'd be like, seriously? This is still not confirmed? Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's, that, that's about, <laughs> that's about but, like, it. But, like, a lot of it is about the better of the doubt, right? Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's inevitable, too, when somebody loses the benefit of the doubt. But, like, because we spend Game of Thrones seasons arguing against that exact argument that you mentioned, that, like, you should wait to see the arc play out. Well, because right? we've waited and seen with D&D, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, like, I'm, I'm sorry, the thing that costs benefit of the doubt for Steven Universe is not going to be Amethyst and Peridot, like, falling <laughs> on each other once, and you're like, well, that's it. We just can't anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's not the most. That's not even the most suggestive thing they have done so far without really following it up much. No, and even like the biggest fandom complaint has been the follow through on the Bismuth episode, and Stephen mm-hmm. just brought that up. Yeah, right. He brings right. it. It was yeah. like important in several episodes, like uh, mindful education. It was yeah. very yeah. important there. Like it's not mm-hmm. something that's been forgotten. Yeah. But... Right, because that's a huge part of how he's processing his feelings about his mom. Yeah, is like that very decision and how that whole like paradox works like it's definitely not how he presents himself for making the same decision yeah right and it's a very good show guys (laughs) seriously it's so good oh it's so good and like honestly just try to take the time and think about hey what is probably going on behind the scenes with these two because it will like fill you with so many feels i didn't know i wanted to ship them i never thought about i was kind of like anti-shipping anyone with lapis really and then they're making meat morphs together i'm like oh my (laughs) god it's perfect it's therapy yeah it is there's art therapy right it's exactly what it is like and i i resisted because i identify so much with lapis at some level Mm -hmm. like that um and as much as I find Peridot adorable, I was like, oh, but she's being kind of obnoxious. Like, yeah, why would like, I want? I identify with Amethyst very strongly, and I know I would never be able to, be able to be in a relationship with someone like with uh, like Peridot. It would drive me. Wild. Yeah, I wouldn't either. And it in, would, it and would in, drive me insane. Like, yeah. And in, in Lapis's case too, Peridot was like you know part of her imprisonment. Yeah. So yep. There's like yeah. that aspect. That's another right. argument I'm sympathetic towards, that we just haven't seen them deal with that enough to uh, be on board with any further developments without that being addressed soon. Mm-hmm. Yep. Or at all. That is something I want addressed. Definitely. Absolutely. Um. So yeah, I mean, the fact that we're all at least open to the possibility, even though I think all of us at some level were maybe potentially resistant at some point, like... Yeah. Should not really, or not like <laughs> you know, we're willing to recognize that it's not perfect, but like, <sighs> I mean, the show is just so good, and <laughs> yeah, just benefit of a doubt. Like, we have to trust that. Well, we don't have to. You don't have to. Um, but this is a show that has done so many other good things. Um, that I'm willing to. I'm willing to wait and see what they do. And if in, and if future. in another year, like we're still waiting and seeing, we might have a different tune. Like, yes, we'll, we'll see what happens. But I definitely, definitely trust the show. Yep. yep. And, if you watch yes. it, 
and it handles the topic of consent much better than like adult television does. <laughs> right, that's one of its major themes. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll I'll link. I read a piece mm-hmm. a long time ago, uh, the childish shows versus children's shows, and it was comparing Game of Thrones and Steven Universe because <laughs> those are the two things I think about. We should drink every time we went to Game of Thrones. Didn't the uh, didn't the Steven Universe crew kind of retweet your piece or yeah, something? E- Something about that? Yeah, Ian of, of the Crewniverse, he retweeted it, and then he retweeted it, and I, like, went back to reread it, and there was, like, all these formatting issues and, like, spelling mistakes. I'm like, oh my god. I'm oh, no. So that was, like, our first kind of creator retweet, though, so it was a huge, huge deal. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and yeah. that was early on, too, yeah. But, yeah, it was... I, I should revisit it and make sure it doesn't look terrible on the new form. <laughs> <laughs> but I will link it after I do that, yes. And on that note, we actually do have to get out of here because we've been talking for like an hour and a half. Uh, so I want to thank Yana very much for coming on and chatting with us. Um, Anytime. Would you be open to coming on and talking about the Jess Dean ship wars? I wasn't actually there for it because I'm a bit young, but I think I could give a good rundown. Um I don't know that I've ever met an Ernest Dean shipper except for my cousin. So... <laughs> I'll ask her if she wants to come on, I guess. I mean, I've seen people yeah. like him for three seasons, and after that, they everyone went, nope. But no one who actually followed all the way through. No. No. Mm. I, th- I think there's just a lot of good... I think my favorite part of Gilmore Girls is that, like, like a lot of shows, you go back and you revisit something that you thought was so good and so nice, and then you rewatch it, and you're like, oh my god. Uh, Dean has anger yes. issues. There's this completely ironic video out there but, with all the supercuts of Dean yelling, uh, titled in which Dean is a putz, and it's supposed to be ironic, but it paints this horrifying picture that I can't get out of my mind because it's really, it's, yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah, so we will definitely have to have you back, if nothing else, to chat about that. I don't know we want to get into Katang and Zutari. <laughs> oh my god. I can go for hours <laughs> on all of these things. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody knows that the only true ship is Polysuka. Polysuka is the most important (laughs) ship. Uh, Other than that, guys, if you like listening to us blather for as long as we did about geeky media, you should leave us a rating or a review. Also, you should tell your friends about us. Uh, Also, apparently all four of us are, like, sick or coughing this episode, so I'm sorry about that. Sorry. We're gonna, you know have a lot of vitamin C because Julia knows that that's a totally good <laughs> why, why do you do this to me Kylie? Because I love you um, <laughs> You're queer baiting! You're queer baiting! Oh my god! <laughs> you have literally accused us of queer baiting so don't go don't check we, we actually have been. Oh my god, oh my god. That's so uh. The reason yeah. I brought up was just to apologize if it sounds like we were talking out of our noses a little bit. I'm sorry, it's that time of year and we were. Yeah. Uh, but other than that, you know, visit thefandamentals.com for our lovely writing, and we will talk to you guys next time. So goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.
<laughs> I'm perfectly calm. I'm completely calm. <laughs> oh wait, no, that was Katar that says I'm completely calm. Oh my god, wait, do Katar and Zuko have like similar anger issues? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> We're not talking about Zuko. <laughs> no. Is that why you invited me here? 